Several people have mentioned fear this morning. And, um, you know, on the one hand, we know that fear is not the realm in which God moves. And that perfect love casts out all fear. But I couldn't help but feel as, we were, as I was sitting here that, you know, if, if you don't feel at least that temptation towards fear or that quickening of your heart beating a little faster when you contemplate what God has called you to do, then it's quite possible that you're not really living in step with the Spirit. There's, there's a certain kind of healthy fear of the Lord and weight of honor at what he's doing and that, that should cause us to feel that sense of, oh boy, and it's, it's not for those of us who feel that that I would worry. It's for those of us who might not feel that that I would worry. Amen. When you start to feel like, oh, I know where we're going and I know what's happening and I know how this works and I've done this a hundred times and it's quite possible that we're no longer in the flow of that river of grace that would lead us out of the boat, out of the comfort zone, and into places that we've never been before. Brothers and sisters, consider what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And it goes on down, I think, to say, so let him who glories glory in the Lord. This passage is telling us that God has a design it's not just that he, he moves in spite of our weakness. He moves because of our weakness. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. It seems intentional, doesn't it? Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit because these things were hidden from the wise and revealed unto babes. Why does that rejoice him? Because... In that case, all the glory goes to God. I was thinking last night about a message that Brother Blair ministered almost 30 years ago now, when I was yet a teenager, I believe. And many of you have probably seen it in written form. It's called Everyday Miracles. It's only like five pages long, but I remember when Brother Blair ministered that message because it was a, a turning point in my own life. And he, he shared in that meeting, he said, he was talking about the danger of losing the sense of awe 
and honor for what God has done for us as a people, for the place that he's brought us to, the miracle of the life that he's allowed us to live, and how easy it is for succeeding generations to, to grow complacent and presumptuous and to simply assume that all of this, that this miracle that they're living in is just a natural thing, that it becomes old hat too easily because they weren't there for the tears that were shed and the blood that was shed to bring these things to pass. And so there's a sense of warning there that, that it can be lost and that if you don't recognize the miracle when it's present, you'll surely recognize what it was once it's gone. And in that meeting, he, he said something to the effect of, he said, some of you young men, you're so, you're so gifted. You're so competent. But you will never be a miracle because you're invulnerable. You don't know what it means to hang naked upon a cross. And until you're willing to stretch out your hands and let another lead you to a place you would not go, you're not going to bring glory to God through your life. I'm paraphrasing and adding to it. but. And you know, when I look back on my life thus far, I would have to say that it could be summed up as a series of reductions and a series of junctures in which God called me to go beyond what I thought I was capable of of doing or being and moving me out to the edge. You know, just when you feel like you start to catch your stride, the Lord says, good, now how about here? Have you ever had that feeling? I think you have. And there's something in it that, I don't know, somehow every time you say, really? Somehow the steps that God calls us to seem to get exponentially bigger. Have you noticed that? You know, and, and you look back and, and you want to say, but Lord, remember when you just asked me to do that little thing and you, you, your favor was so gracious upon me. Maybe it was just to, to finally lift my hands in a meeting and not worry about what people were thinking about me or something simple like that. And, oh, the presence of God was there. I remember the first time I lifted my hands. I think I'll just stay there because now it's no problem. I don't think about it anymore. And the Lord says, well, I need a little more from you than, than lifting your hands in the meeting. Amen. Continue in what I've showed you, but, but I need more from you than that. And you need more than that. I can remember when we first came to the, the fellowship, um, we'd been here probably a year, a little more maybe, and um, I had gotten into music and um, had a gift for it and was learning a lot of instruments. And I remember this one time we were, we were playing music over at someone's house here in Waco, and, and uh, there were not very many families in Waco at that point. Most of the fellowship was in Austin, and um, several of the elders showed up at the house where I was playing music with my friends. I think Brother Howard was there. Brother Blair was there. And they said, well, you know, play, play something. So we, we played a few things. I was playing my mandolin. And, and afterwards, Brother Blair was 
Uh, might have been the first time that I ever had a conversation with him, but uh, he he was asking some of us, my brother Philip and I, you know, you know, what are, what's your name and how old are you? And and um, he said something to me along the lines of, "You have you have a, a real gift there. How old are you?" And um, my wife likes to remind me of this conversation because she was present at the time and terribly embarrassed for me, but. Um, he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 14. <laughs> so now you know why my life has been a series of reductions. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you recognize the feeling. Some of you are laughing because you still feel that way. <laughs> Amen. And... You know, you just don't have really any idea when you're all of 14 and have the world by the tail. You really don't have any idea what life is about or what you're really headed for. And yet, even in that moment, I would say what prompted my reaction that came across as pride, because it was, was mostly fear. It was mostly fear. You know, there, there was some sense that I've got to give the right answer and I've got to this and I've got to that and I don't know what to do and I'm uncomfortable here and I've, I'm, you know, I've never talked to Brother Blair before or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. And, and um, it was fear. But fear and pride are, are cousins. They ultimately have the same, the same lineage because they're all about self-preservation. And that's exactly what God is trying to do in our lives, isn't it? Is to sift the self out of us Amen. To blow that, that north wind through that will take the last leaves off of the tree of self-confidence in our lives. And then I started thinking this morning about the call of God and, and how really throughout the Bible it comes to people who don't feel ready. It comes to people who don't feel capable or adequate. When the Lord called Saul says he answered and said am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin why then do you speak like this to me and of course we know that later in his life when Saul lost the kingship why was it it was because he no longer felt this way remember Samuel said when you were little in your own eyes were you not head of all the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? He could be king because he was small in his own eyes. When the Lord appears to Gideon, he addresses him as a mighty man of valor. Gideon does not recognize that description. The Lord tells him, you know, he asks, where are the miracles? There's no miracles. I'm not seeing miracles. And then the Lord answers again and says, Go in this might of yours. Might. Or we might say strength. Go in this strength, this strength of yours. What strength? The strength that you're small in your own eyes. Gideon said to the Lord, My Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely 
I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. When the Lord called Moses, Moses had a rejoinder for him. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. It almost sounds like Moses thought, you know, maybe it's okay to, to lack the gift that I perceive that I should, will need before God calls me. But if God calls me, I should expect to immediately feel competent and capable. But that hasn't happened. So apparently there's been some mistake. But the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. He's saying, You need to walk in relationship of dependence upon me, and this is by design. He's saying, I know who you are. I made you. The Lord does not argue with him and say, Oh, no, no, Moses, you're actually very eloquent. You're just a little self-deprecating. The Lord apparently is recognizing that this guy doesn't have some natural tendency towards eloquence. Is it possible that God chose him because he was going to have to depend upon God? Moses again has a rejoinder and says, Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God is not impressed when we say, oh, no, 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 thank you. I, I, I don't think, you know, when I said I'll follow you wherever you go, and you said, okay, but how about here? I think you have the wrong guy. Uh, someone else would be better qualified. I don't think I'm the one. We want God to complement our humility when we respond that way. But he's not asking us to do something. He's not ever asking us to do something, to be something that he is not going to supply the grace to be. Of course, we know Solomon Remember his response to the Lord in his dream, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? When Jeremiah was called, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, 
for I am with you to deliver you. Over and over, you see, it happens. You say, well, how should I know when to expect that God might be calling me? We shouldn't expect this buildup of competency and confidence, should we? No. It could be any time. It could be today. And of course, I think about Paul in his calling. <clears throat> you might say Paul was very competent in the flesh. He said so, didn't he? Remember when he says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins to list all the things that he'd done right. All of his training, all of his knowledge, all of his zeal, and all of his good intentions, and all of these things, and, and how perfectly blameless according to the law, how just right he had lived his entire life. I have reason, he says, for confidence in the flesh. But he counted all of that rubbish for the surpassing greatness of being on the edge, of being in the flow, of living in the realm of miracles, not the realm of competency, the stale, dead, short-sighted world of self-confidence. I, was, I read this where Paul's conversion. There's really two people being called out on the edge in this story. After Paul has been knocked off his horse by this blinding light and the Lord has spoken to him and he's, he's blind because of the glory of the light that he saw. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now this guy, from my reading, I don't think we ever hear of him before now, nor after this do we ever hear about Ananias. He's not listed as a minister or an elder or anything. We don't know what he was. He's just called a certain disciple. He's just moving along with his life. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. I had a conversation with a man many years ago who was a very wealthy, influential man in Waco. He was out for a visit. And um, I don't remember why now, but at some point in the conversation, I had made the comment that, in something I was trying to explain, that the Lord is a gentleman, that he doesn't uh, impose his will upon us, but he stands at the door and knocks. And if we will open the door, then he'll come in. And then later in the conversation, this man said to me in kind of a challenging way, he said, he said, well, I, I like what you said about God being a gentleman, but I don't think it's always true. He said, well, what about Saul when he got knocked off his horse? Saw this blinding light, and I don't think Saul had much of a choice. You know, I mean, this guy's going along with his life. He's going on to do this, and all of a sudden, God knocks him off his horse and blinds him and puts him through, and it's like, what else is he supposed to do but follow God at that point? I don't think he had a choice. 
But I told him, I think he did have a choice. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> there, there's a reason why we want to believe that, that God only calls people by um, kind of sovereign, divine circumstances that almost automatically catapult them into his purpose. Because that way, we can say that if that didn't happen to me, then, then I don't have to follow. <laughs> you see? So, anyways, but I told him I think he did have a choice. And when we read here, you can see his choice, can't you? Yes, he's gone through a reduction. But reductions that come to us from the outside, maybe we go through a tragedy or, or something, they don't convert people. Tragedies do not convert people. Love converts people. Tragedies may help to reduce the flesh, but love is always a choice. So Saul's been knocked off his horse, but what is he doing? He's praying. He's seeking God, saying, where to go from here? He's wrestling to be able to say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. And the Lord is speaking to him as he's praying. And what is he doing? He's showing him what his life is supposed to be like for behold he is praying and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight then Ananias answered Lord I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name but the Lord said to him go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake has God ever shown you how many things you must suffer I think about that song we sing that says if I told you what I really need from you would you still say yes would your heart and soul still say yes if I showed you what I really need from you? He says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Do you think his heart was pounding a little bit? <laughs> I mean, imagine. Imagine... Uh, our worst enemy that we've ever faced individually or as a people probably did not compare to this, this murderer named Saul. And pick him out. Pick out your worst enemy. And, and if the Lord said, why don't you go to his house, bring the gospel to him, how would you feel? Where he leads me, I will follow. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Is this living in the realm of miracles? This is living out on the edge. This is not anybody feeling competent. Saul is not feeling competent. Ananias is not feeling competent. But God is at work. And then I thought of how Paul, later on, he writes to the Corinthians. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, 
a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure, he says it twice. The reductions are for our good, lest any of us be exalted above measure. We want to skip the things that the Lord has prepared that we must suffer, and yet they're for our good. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Go in this might of yours. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the same Paul who said, Brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can just picture his prayers before the meetings. Lord, let it be nothing from me, none of my baggage, none of my know-how, none of my prowess. God, strip all that from me until it's just you speaking through me. Make my life a living sacrifice. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. It's the right kind of fear. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God has given grace and gifts to his people. I think it was our last Sunday meeting when Brother Asi ministered to us the word about the grace of God being ministered in its various forms. And... I think he even mentioned then that the word grace and the word gift are really, they all share the same roots, the same thing. We have been graced with many gifts as a people, have we not? God has given us so many gifts in various forms. Thank you, Jesus. And we have a responsibility to use them, but how? How does our gift bring grace And I thought about, you know, when you see somebody moving in a great gift, maybe it's in a gift of service, maybe it's in a gift of coordinating a project, maybe it's in a gift of ministering to us in song or speaking the word or there's all types and manners of, of gifts. And when we see somebody moving in a great gift, it can bring grace to us if it's done in humility because of the transparency, the flow that's able to come through that gift. Let me give you an example. When we listen to, I'm going to pick on Brother Josiah. When we listen, listen to Brother Josiah sing, does it feel different than when a teenager gets up here to sing? He was hoping you'd say yes. <laughs> but but why why is that? 
Why is that? When we listen to him sing, we're, we're usually not worried that he's going to mess up the timing, um, sing out of tune. He has a command of what he's doing. He has a gift from God. He has a beautiful voice. And so he doesn't have to focus so much on his singing. He can just be a clear channel. Because you see, when, when, when you have to focus on, am I getting this right, and this is very hard for me, and I've never done this before, and all this, there, there's almost an automatic tendency to, to, to turn this way. But if the gift is developed, there can be a flow that, that just allows for transparency, where no one, neither the audience nor the singer, has to be feeling like, oh, oh, oh boy, Lord help him. You know what I mean? None of us are thinking about that. None of us. And so then the song becomes front and center. The words come through. The power of the music becomes an enveloping thing because we're not focused on Josiah, and Josiah's not focused on Josiah. It's just flowing. You see? And so a great gift can be a channel of great grace. It can even be a grace to the one with the gift because you can stop thinking about yourself and just give. But that only happens in humility because that same great gift can serve just the opposite function, can't it? And we've all seen that, haven't we? We've seen people with incredible gifts. I'll stay on the music topic. We've seen people with incredible gifts but they're doing the grown-up version of, I'm 14. Right? And so, even though the gift is incredible, it is served in such a way that just exudes the fact that I am so conscious that I'm incredible. I am so conscious that I am better at this than anybody else here or whatever. You know, I, I was thinking of it almost like a, the gift is really just a tool it can, it just how you use it that determines whether or not it, it does great things for God or whether it destroys the kingdom. Paul had great gifts. And he was effectively destroying the church of God with his gifts until something called humility came into the picture, something called reduction, and then a faithful God to continue the reductions. Even as he started to get his Christian feet under him, God started to use him. Maybe a thorn in the flesh would help because you've got to stay small in your own eyes. I thought of our gift almost like a telescope. You know, you can look through it one way. You look through it the right way and the world opens up and it's magnified. The picture gets huge. You turn it around and you look through it the other way, the same thing. You just have a different perspective. Maybe you're looking from above instead of from underneath. And through the same gift, everything shrinks down to this little world in which you are the biggest fish in a small pond. So we need the gifts. And God has entrusted us with gifts. But those gifts have got to be used by people who live on the edge. By people who live in view of the miracle. Otherwise... 
Others may benefit. Paul says, you know, you, you, may, you may exercise great gifts, but it's not going to profit if it isn't done through love. And what is love if it's not the ultimate turning out towards others and not ourselves? You all know we were down in New Zealand um, for a time that was turned out to be a bit different than, than what had been anticipated. They were gearing up for their first conference ever there, and they'd invited all kinds of people, and, and a week or two before the conference, in blew the storm of the century. Reduction, you might say. And um, they had a cyclone. That's what they call hurricanes down there. They had a cyclone that was dumped record amounts of rain and washed out bridges and literally just eliminated whole sections of the highway uh, from the nearest town. And so most of their guests were not able to even come. And, um, you know, there was a sense of, what do we do? Uh, do we need to rearrange? And but there was a feeling of faith that we're going to carry on. Amen. God has a purpose in this. He knows what he's doing. And if he sees fit to dump some water on the sacrifice, then we're going to let, we're going to move in his grace anyway and let all the glory go to him. So we felt to proceed with it and we had a wonderful time. It was, it was a time of grace and power. There were a lot of visitors from all over the place there. And um, the Lord spoke some powerful things there, but I want to just touch on a couple of them. Maybe some of you saw some of this because maybe you were watching online, but, um, you know, we had a moment where a young man who was not part of that community, he was part of another of our communities and was visiting there, testified after one of the meetings or in one of the meetings. I've never seen this young man this way. This is a young man who's very gifted very capable. He spread his wings and went to the world for a while and did well out there. And, but he's, came, he's come back and, and um, there was a point in the meeting when he, when he stood up and shared and I, I was sitting in the front and I turned around and looked back and I thought, Lord, I hardly recognize this young man. His face, his entire face was just quivering so that he could hardly talk tears in his eyes and I don't even remember exactly what he said but he talked about I just want to be a child of God it was so transparent it was so genuine and there was a sense in which I felt at that moment I felt like God you are ministering more through this simple testimony of vulnerability than maybe anything else that's been said or done in this meeting. Because this is a man who is with us in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And one night, Brother, Brother Eddie shared his testimony with everybody. Brother Eddie was a grew up in New Zealand and and um, you know by many standards you would say he, he really had it made he grew up in a, in a good home and he 
he had a great education and he was gifted at sports and he became a fitness trainer and he got a good job and you know he used to um, he was you know raised in a Christian home and went to a nice church and and he um, he had I remember when we visited them in 2014 I think it was the first time I went um, they lived in this I mean idyllic setting on the north side of the South Island in New Zealand and and he had a house right on the beach and he would he taught at the school across the bay in town and he would kayak across the bay to where he left his bicycle and then he'd bicycle the rest of the way to school where he'd teach for the day and then bicycle back and then kayak back across the bay to his beach house and that was life you know pretty rough <laughs> but he, there was just many ways in which he was very he was very competent he did well and you know but in his testimony he kept he talked about how he always felt like is this all there is you know there's something is there something missing you know what what was it and and encountering the word of god and encountering the people of god and and feeling god calling him out to that edge <laughs> you know and he talked about how he came and visited here in texas after meeting some of the brothers in, in New Zealand, and he came here to Texas to visit, and he said, I felt so welcomed. I felt so, um, everybody was so kind to me. I felt, in a sense, I felt one with the people here, and I felt like my heart was open. And he said, but I, I somehow felt like there was, there was some gap between me and the people here, and I, I, I almost didn't even know what it was, but I felt like somehow they had, they had it wasn't that they were holding me at arm's length it was just like they had experienced something that i didn't yet understand and somehow i i felt like i couldn't quite be one with everybody even though they were so welcoming and inviting and and i i wanted to and i was reaching for what that was and he said then some brothers came and uh, a few months later to visit again in new zealand and they they ministered about repentance and I told Brother Ed later that I've shared his story all over the world, his coming to repentance story, because it was so impactful to me. But we taught on repentance when we were there, Brother Ossie, Brother Nathan, myself. And, um, and he, uh, I can remember, you know, we taught many of the things that are in dying to death, and, and God was with us there. And we talked about digging down to the foundation and 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 tearing down the old edifice and all this. And, and I remember Brother Ed asking one question after the end of extensive teaching. And I remember his eyes and he said, he said, can I, can I just ask, is this, this repentance is that, that you're talking about, is this, is this sort of a, something that just kind of works itself out through your life, the course of your life? Or is this, is, are you talking about an event that happens to somebody? And, of course, the answer was yes. That there's something in us sometimes that wants to differentiate between the two. You know, if we've had some powerful encounter with God, then we want to think, I already did that. I don't need to live there on that edge. And there's, if we haven't, if we're not sure we've had that kind of moment with God, then we want to believe that it's, it's I'm working on it. You know, we'll get there eventually. It's kind of an evolutionary thing. 
But it just has to be both, doesn't it? Amen. And we, we shared that with him. And, you know, the question that often comes is, well, how, how will you know? How will I know when I'm really dead to myself? And we talked some about that. And he went away, and it was, it was, it was actually two days later that we were eating breakfast in, um, in our rented house there. And we got a knock on the door, and it was Brother Jared and Brother Eddie. And uh, I went to the door, and, hi, brothers, come in. And Brother Jared was, good morning. And Brother Eddie had this look on his face. It was like 9 o'clock in the morning. And um, we came in, and we were eating breakfast, and we said, you know, brothers, if you want to join us, feel free, sit down. And we're just finishing up some breakfast. And, and Brother Jared kind of said to me, I, I think Brother Ed wants to pray. And Ed just walked past the breakfast table without a word, and he went into the living room. We said, okay. And we started to talk a little bit with Brother Jared, and then this, we started to hear this, uh, uh, coming from the living room. We set down our forks, pushed our chairs away from the table, and we all started to pray. We went in the living room, and Brother Ed was laying on his face behind the couch in travail before the Lord. And he didn't tell all of this in his testimony, but this is my memory of it. But in his testimony, he said, then I knew, he said, there I, he said, I just felt like God was stripping away from me everything in myself that I had ever trusted in. He was reducing me down until there was nothing left but whatever he might give me. Amen. And he said, you know, Brother Ed shared this with us, and it was, he didn't share it in a dramatic way. He just shared it straightforward. And he said, so there I was, 40 years old, and my life had just begun. Reduced to the place where it's only God. We have this treasure in jars of clay that the excellence of the glory might belong to God and not to us. Thank you, Jesus. And I guess that's my heart today is, God, I want to live in a place where I only glory in the Lord. And if we can communicate anything to our next generation that comes up, you know, if, if there was a danger... 25 or 30 years ago that we could grow complacent and, and, and confident in the place the Lord has brought us. How much more do we have that danger today? Thank you, Jesus. And if we can impart anything to the generations to come, God, help us to impart that sense of the fear of God and the honor of God that we live on the edge. That we're able to say, Lord, wherever you lead me, I'm going to follow. Do you have the courage to pray, God, take me out to the edge? Don't leave me in my realm of competence. Amen. It always came in stages for me. You know, I told you about raising my hands, and, you know, then there was receiving the Holy Spirit, and there was testifying in the meeting for the first time, and there, there were all those things, you know, humbling myself to ask for prayer, and then being asked to help with this or 
Um, and then the Lord calling us to go to Brazil. When I was 25, he spoke to us to go to Brazil. Totally out of our element. Totally foreign culture, foreign language. You know, if you, not only did we have to pray through about what are we supposed to minister, but we had to then find the grace to figure out how to say it in Portuguese. And, you know, that's humbling. You can't really learn a language unless you are willing to come as a child and say it simple and sound stupid, you know. And then even then, though, I remember after that season there, and I mean, that was a season of one impossibility after another. And then coming back here six months later and, and realizing in a sense after I got here that, you know what, there was some way in which I was getting a little bit comfortable even over there. It's easy to start feeling a little bit like the big fish in the small pond again and kind of catch your stride. And brother, brother so-and-so who's three times as gifted as me is not looking over my shoulder or, or having such a direct ministry into my life. Now I'm back. So now what am I going to do? <laughs> now I've got to learn to operate in my gift in the presence of those who would disciple me more intensely. And Amen? It's always one thing after another. And you get comfortable here, and the Lord says, Come on. You're going to miss out on the miracle unless you stay with me. Amen. God, what's next? Amen. There's an invitation. Amen. There's an invitation. God is calling some of us to move in gifts that may be beyond us. We're told to eagerly desire the best gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. God, birth a prophetic ministry among us. God, birth gifts of healing among us, gifts of faith and words of knowledge. You know, none of those things happen if you don't go out on the edge, if you're not willing to go there. It just doesn't happen. Amen. The Lord might be calling us out of our comfort zone. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Maybe he's calling us to suffer. Amen. Lord, if it's your will, I'm willing to suffer for your name's sake. Why? That the excellence of the power might be of God and not of me. You know, we were praying for the little fellow in the wheelchair down here the, earlier, and I thought, God, you can move through circumstances like this. And I found myself praying for the parents as much as I was praying for the child. You know, you just never know the turns that your life is going to take. Amen. You think about... There was a time when, when you know, the next step for me was marriage. And that was a little scary. I was marrying Brother Blair's daughter. It was going to plant me in a family that was uncomfortable for me because it was unknown. I didn't feel worthy. Who am I? I'm just a child. I'm just a youth. Whatever. All those excuses. And the Lord says, I'm calling you anyway. And then there comes a time when we're expecting our first child. You say, oh Lord, never been through a birth before. This is going to take us to the edge. You hear young people talk about birth and, and such a little differently before it's happened to them. And they talk about it afterwards. Once you've been out to the edge and you, you had no hand to hold but the hand of God and those that he sent, you say, God, this was a miracle. 
don't care what somebody else tells me about their naturalistic viewpoint and yeah, he's got to be tough. I, baloney. Life is a miracle every time. And then when you're there, you're focused in that place of total vulnerability, total need, total dependence. And then afterwards you feel like, so many people say it, I've said it over and over, I didn't even want it to stop. This is life. This is God. God, help me to live in a place of vulnerability and dependence because you're so close when I'm in that spot. And then life goes on and you've got teenagers and they've got to be born into the kingdom. And God is calling you to be the dad, to be the mom. Amen. You say, God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get them from here to there. I don't have it. Who is your servant? And he says, I called you. I chose you. I'm going to be with you. If you'll, if you'll not just desire the gifts, but you'll move in love. I'm going to give you what you need. Thank you, Jesus. There's always going to be another step of reduction. What is he calling us to today? He's calling some of us to find the grace to die. Nobody that dies has ever done it before. Unless you're Lazarus, I guess. Or something like that. You've just never been there until you're there. And you once again find yourself at the edge. Amen. You say, God, I've never done this before. I need you. But I'm going to trust you. New levels of trust. New levels of grace. I've been hearing reports about the meetings in the, in the groups in the church. I've been hearing about moves of God. New levels of grace. Do you think that's an accident? Or do you think that it's because a lot of us feel like we're out on the edge again? We're out in realms where God is calling us someplace where we don't feel capable, we don't feel competent. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, it's by design. Not many wise, not many noble. It's not the super gifted. It's those who are willing. Amen. Lord, keep us there. Keep us there as a people. Keep us there before you. Who is your servant but a child? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, God. Praise your name, Jesus. Lord, where you lead us, we will follow. Amen, Jesus. If you feel that distance between you and the people of God and you say there's something different, I feel it from this brother, I feel it from these people, there's something they have. Let God take you into that place of reduction. Thank you, Jesus. Let God strip away from you your confidence, the pride, the fear. Praise your name, Jesus, God. Thank you, Jesus, God, till he's near again. Amen, Jesus. This is my worship. This is my offering. Yet every moment, I withhold nothing. I'm learning to trust you, even when I can't see it. And even in suffering, I have to believe it. 
you say it's wrong, then I'll say no. If you say release, I'm letting go. If you're in it with me, I'll begin. And when you say to jump, I'm diving in. If you say be still, then I will wait. If you say to trust, I will obey. I don't want to follow my own ways. Done chasing feelings, spirit lead me. It felt like a burden, but once I could grasp it, you took me further, further than I was asking. And simply to see you, it's worth it all. My life is an altar. Let your fire fall. If you say it's wrong, then I'll say no. If you say release, I'm letting go. If you're in it with me, I'll begin. And when you say to jump, I'm diving in. If you say still, then I'll if you say to trust, I will obey. I don't want to follow my own ways. I surrender. Spirit, lead me. Oh. I don't trust my ways. Lord, I'm trading. I've laid down everything because you're all that I want. I've landed on my knees. This is the cup you have for me. And even when it don't make sense, I'm gonna let your spirit be. I don't trust. 